Father, through our praise and through our study of your word, may we draw closer to you and you to us. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us with your presence and knowledge of your truth as we look at it today. Lord, as always, we pray for those among us who may not know you. Call them to salvation. Help them understand the purpose of Christ's life and death was to provide what they could never do on their own, which was perfect righteousness and a payment for their sin, and then provide the resurrection from the dead. Again, something we cannot do on our own. Give them the faith and help them follow Christ in repentance. May all of us have faith and repentance as we open and look at your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's a privilege to gather to, together today and study the Word of God. I hope you brought your Bibles with you. If you don't, there are some friendly people walking around with Bibles, and you can grab one. Incidentally, if you do not have a Bible, that a hard copy of the Bible, that is a Bible you can take home with you. That's yours. That's our gift to you. We are studying the first letter of Peter to the exiles. These are Christians who had to flee their own homeland, their own cities and countries because of persecution. In this letter, Peter wrote to them to instruct them how to believe and behave in this time of exile. Without question, this is then one of the most practical, applicable letters in the New Testament. And if you've been with us, you know our approach just about any given Sunday is that we go through the Bible, Lectio Continua, just one passage after the next until we just sort of digest slowly each book of the Bible together, and we've been studying this book, 1 Peter. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, Peter has told us we should live an honorable life, a life that is notable for our morality, our ethical standards, our virtue, and he is walking us through the various arenas of our life, various relationships that we have in this world. And he's going to show us how we can walk honorably, how we can conduct ourselves honorably in this world. First, we saw last week our relationship with the civil government. What an important message and thought in these days, election year. Certainly outlying exceptions to when we are to rebel against government, particularly when government forces us or denies us obedience to God. But the rule is stated right there in verse 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to the civil authorities, to the government. That's the overarching temp temperament which was defined all Christians. We ought to have a certain attitude toward the government in, secular, in a secular society. What about Christians in a secular workplace? What should be our defining virtue there, on a more applicational level, what is your reputation at the workplace? How do, you co how do your coworkers and bosses and employees, how do they view you? How do your clients view you? If you're self-employed, how do the vendors and the franchiser and those who you, whom you work with, how do they view you? I understand you can't control everybody's thoughts, but there is a sense in which everyone will know, ultimately, even if they deny it with their words, they will know exactly the kind of person you really are. Are you someone who's dedicated to following Jesus Christ? Or would they be surprised to find out that you're a Christ follower? I have to say something. At this juncture, working at a church is an amazing blessing. 
it is a freeing, joyful blessing to come in and work among Christians. Staff, we're all believers and we're all hyper aware of the fact that we ought to walk in the Spirit. We attempt to do this. We want to live up to the biblical standard. It's not that we don't have bad days or aren't grumpy once in a while to one another, but we try to set things straight. We try to keep things above board. And I can say that for each of our church staff members. They truly seek to follow Jesus, to be like Jesus. On top of that, we're all members of this church. And so we have another mechanism in terms of our relationship with one another, and that is the mechanism of church membership and church discipline. We are all in this church to keep one another members, to keep one another accountable. We're to call one another. I mean, one of the first things that Jesus did when he talked about the local church was to instruct us on encouraging each other when we're sinning. That's how we're supposed to live. And so there's this mechanism. What I want to do is I want to draw a contrast. We're we are living in this church context and this wonderful place of happiness and joy. And there's these mechanisms and these, these reasons why we want to encourage one another. But then you go out into the world and it's the opposite, right? We go out into the world and it's like Survivor Island. There's all these alliances and gossip and selfishness. There's people who are trying to go it alone and they'll step on anybody who gets in their way. But here in the church, we have this wonderful thing. We have this wonderful setup. In fact, if you think about church and, and relationships in the church, it's really beautiful what God has given us. In Scripture, basically, the way the Lord has set it up is that no sin is uh, not dealt with. Every sin, every problem, every controversy should be dealt with. And, and basically, we have two options, right? One option is to, to bear one another's burdens, right? Sometimes we, we think there's something there, and as we look into it, maybe we're misunderstanding, maybe someone misspoke, maybe there's something, and we realize, well, maybe it's not a sin, maybe I'm just misunderstanding, and so we decide, I'm not going to pursue the the art of church discipline. I'm not going to approach this person like they've sinned because it, clearly I don't really understand. And so you bear it, you turn away from it, you say, I'm not going to consider this and I'm, I'm going to forget it. The other option, if you really believe there's sin going on, is the process Jesus lays out in Matthew 18, the process of discipline, where you go to that person you, alone and you can confront them with their sin and you try to work them to some level of repentance. And maybe you find out even then you are in some ways misunderstanding something. All that to say this, the church should be some taste of heaven where there's not a bunch of unresolved issues. Again, not like Survivor Island. There's not like all these people mad at each other and sides of the church and people angry at one another. And I can say it's my joy to report that as near as makes no difference, we're, we're pretty much 100%. I don't know of any issues. I'm sure there are but between our members. But... I don't know of anything. There's not any burden thing, burdensome issue going on in our church. And as long as I've been here, there's not anything really that's been super heavy like that. Some of you guys know that a few years ago, four years ago, I initiated the process of becoming a Navy Reserve chaplain. And uh, quite frankly, as old and broken as I am, I was surprised they let me in. I relied heavily on that adage, where there's a will, there's a waiver. <laughs> I had to get waivers. Well, not having, having not worked in a secular workplace for 20-some years, 
I was surprised and shocked at how nefarious and how dark the secular workplace is. And uh, I have grown e extremely empathetic to those of you. I work maybe, you know, for the Navy, maybe seven days a month. You work seven days a week. And I have great empathy for those of you who go out and have to deal with all these nut jobs <laughs> who are trying to run you over and ply their trade and ruin your life, sometimes ruin your career just to get ahead. That's not to say there aren't good people. There aren't, that's not even to say that there aren't people who aren't Christians who are good. There are nice people out there. There are even non-Christians who are nice. I, and I even think of my own chain of command right now. My skipper has professed that he is a Christ follower. My, uh, my chain of influence, we call it, in the, in the chaplain corps, all of the chaplains that are sort of above me in that same area, they're all followers of Christ, conservative, Bible-believing, God-fearing men, and uh, I'm so glad for that. Uh, but I do work outside that group regularly. I do have to procure documents and get signatures and approvals and do planning with, with a host of other people, and I found out that some people can just be downright hateful, petty. Sometimes it's impossible to work with them. And this really puts me to the test. Will I be what I've asked my congregation over and over to be? I couldn't do, I, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't do what you do. The seven days I spend a month, just you know, two or three days there at work and then a few days on the internet emailing people, FaceTiming people, I couldn't do this. I couldn't do it. I'm asking you to do something that I know that I can't do myself, okay? Uh, but God gives you grace. God will supply the grace you need to deal with a secular workplace. And the way he does that is by giving us scriptures like this that bury itself in you and sanctify you and enable you to live a life that honors Christ in a very secular workplace. All right, let me read to you these verses, verse 18 of 1 Peter 2, and uh, I'll go down to verse 25 if you would follow along as I read aloud. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is hard to overstate the prevalence of slavery in the Roman Empire. Now, you heard a lot more when Spencer was up here preaching a few months ago from Titus, and you can go back and listen to that and get a little more detail about slavery in that century. 
Incidentally, uh, Spencer's going to start 1 Corinthians next Sunday. So make sure and be here for that. Essentially, the Romans would go as they conquered that part of the world. They would go and they would enslave pretty much everyone in the client states. What that means is there were many, many slaves in all the cities and communities across the Roman Empire. Indeed, there were some cities and communities that would be mostly slaves. So we learned these slaves are not all slaves like we think of from the 19th century American abusive context. There were some like that. There were masters and slaves who were like that. But many others would have a range of occupations, all the way down to galley slave who was treated horribly, all the way up to estate stewards, to doctors, even politicians. Some politicians were slaves. So in the broadest sense, slaves who were most of the population, all of them had someone over them. There was someone they had to listen to, some authority they had to answer to, some master we might think of today as a boss, some sort of authority. It's a common presumption by church historians that most of the early church by 100 A.D. were, were slaves. I mentioned this a minute ago, but I know some of you are self-employed. You might think, well, this really doesn't apply to me, but you do have to answer to your clients. You do have people, maybe your vendors, maybe your franchisor, maybe you answer in some other way to other people. You are working with other human beings, unless you're like a, a day trader and sit at your computer all day. Then you have to answer to your wife. But you answer to other people. You have to answer to people. You have to work with people. Few of us, if any, don't have anyone to whom we answer. So this passage is applicable in all sorts of ways. Now, how does this passage break down? Well, you have two main points of instruction here, and the first one is a little shorter, the second one's a little longer, so I'm going to give two sub-points for that second point, and uh, if you want to take notes, you can write it down like this. Point number one, treat every workplace authority with respect. Treat every workplace authority with respect. Now, the language here is almost identical to what we saw up in 13, same Greek word, be subject, hupotasso, submit willingly, yield to, follow, even obey would be a good interpretation of that word. Who? Obey your masters. Again, the idea of a servant, text, uh, uh, the Greek word there is oikos. So again, it's kind of a broad idea of servant, all the way from the galley slave to the servant who tutored the emperor's children, right? Submit to your master. Again, there's definite exceptions. If your master wants you to disobey God, the whole reason you're submitting to your master is because you submit ultimately to God. So if that master asks you to do something, that boss asks you to do something dishonest or wrong or sinful, you tell them what the people uh, said to the uh, uh, governing authorities that we mentioned last week. You say, I can't do that because I have a God that I serve. I'm going to obey God. It's better to obey God rather than man. But most of the time... The temperament, the, the overarching temperament, the demeanor you have towards your boss is that of subservience. You submit to your master. Now, I want to take you for a few moments to one of the distinguishing marks of Christians and Christian ethics. Keep your finger there in First in, uh, Peter and flip back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, a big part of it 
Jesus is describing for us the ethics of kingdom people, right? He's, he's explaining to us what kingdom people should live like. A lot of very practical information there. And this is what he's calling us to, to live in this way. He's not abolishing the Old Testament law, but he's bringing it to its full conclusion, and that is that we have this group of people, these kingdom people, who live a certain way in life. Look down in verse 43 of Matthew 5. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This would have been a, an adage from the Pharisees. You only, only owe love to those who are kind to you. Your enemies, you can hate them. Because they hate you, you can hate them back. You only love the, those who are kind to you. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now you can follow what Jesus is saying here. The reference point for human love for fleshly love, is self. It's not God. It's not God's unconditional love. It's love based upon what that person does for me. We love based upon simply and merely what that person does for me. I love her because she's beautiful, and she makes my heart go pitter-patter, and she looks nice on my arm as we walk through the school cafeteria. Um... It's okay to feel, about, feel like that about your wife, but that shouldn't be the only feeling. Your love should run much deeper than that. But that is love in, as defined by today's world, right? What does this person do for me? She makes me look better. Uh, they fulfill some side of me or some need that I have. They bring this to the relationship. That's why I love this person. I love this boss. I like this boss of mine because he is very interested in my career moving forward, getting to a better place, me advancing in my career. I really like this guy. But I really don't like this other boss because he seems to impede at every step. He seems to give me bad reports and bad evaluations. Jesus says... If you love those who love you, do not even the tax collectors do the same? The, the tax collector, you remember this from our study of Matthew, the tax collector was the bottom of society. The tax collector would be something like a, a, a mafia boss, someone who was involved in all sorts of criminal activity. It wasn't just a money thing. That was sort of the, the basis of it. But there was all kinds of other things related to tax collectors and what they did. They, they uh, basically broke all kinds of Old Testament laws just to be wealthy, and they uh, communed and worked with people like prostitutes and other people involved in criminal activity. Now, Jesus, of course, he would show his love for tax collectors, but he's using that phrase like everyone would under, understand and know it. That's no different than the worst sinners of society. To love someone who just loves you, everybody does that. Even the worst people in the world do that. That's their ethic. Should we live by that ethic? Not at all. 
you should love your enemies. If you follow the Pharisees' morality, if you follow their advice, if you follow their adages and and think that if someone's your enemy, you do not owe, owe them any love, if you follow the world's definition of love, you're no different than tax collectors, the worst of this world. He goes on to say Gentiles. That's, that's really a reference to their, their pagan worship. You're, you're, like no, you're no different than any pagan on this world. in this world. Your love is a world's kind of love. Now, Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. You know, we have to really work on this, don't we? This is not an easy command. Your first instinct when someone shows hate or you find out someone's gossiped about you or said something wrong about you, your, your first instinct is not love. I'm just going to love that person. We have to work at this, right? We don't want to join the ranks of sinners that Jesus mentions here. So Jesus says, no way. We are citizens of the kingdom. If we're repentant, we should contradict this by loving our enemies. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You do the same thing. Sometimes it's as simple as a greeting, right? Someone has wronged you. You find out they're gossiping about you, and when they walk in the room, you walk out. It's so petty and immature and unloving. Jesus says, don't be like that. That's That's the love of the world. Now, Jesus is not saying be a hypocrite, be a fake, put on a fake And he's also not saying, hey, you just need to go up to everybody who's ever offended you and confront them. What he's saying is, you need to work on loving people who even hate you. Just work on it. Think about the fact that you were God's enemy, and he loved you, and he changed you, and he drew drew you to himself, and changed your heart so that you would turn in love to him. In fact, he gave you the love. Wherewith you could love him. We love him because he first loved us. So he took those of us, all of us who were enemies, and he loved us in such a way that we would love him. So Jesus is not saying be a hypocrite. He's saying work on loving others like God loves you. This is how we distinguish our love. We don't just love and respect a boss who loves and respects us. We respect all workplace Authorities. Well, back to 1 Peter. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Treat every workplace authority with respect. Now look at verse 19. This points us to our next, gets us to our next point. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly, for what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? But if you do, do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You notice twice it says this is a gracious thing. To have a bad boss, to be treated poorly, and to endure and suffer under that situation, it is a gracious thing. Point number two, consider being mistreated a gracious thing. Consider being mistreated a gracious thing. The bottom line is that in any secular workplace, eventually there will be someone who comes along and they have some sort of angst towards you as a follower of Christ. And maybe they don't even know you're a follower of Christ. Maybe they're just a jerk all on themselves. But they're going to treat you terribly. 
Sometimes this happens upwards from employees. Sometimes it comes from the top. Usually it's someone above you. They seek to make life difficult from you. They may go so far as punishing, me, punishing you, blocking your goals, even trying to ruin your career. Peter says, this is a gracious thing. Technically, the word there is simply grace. This is a grace. This is a blessing. This is a positive in your life. How so, Peter? How is this terrible situation with this horrible boss, this workplace filled with all sorts of dissension and disgruntled people, how is this a grace? Well, there's a couple of ideas here. This is a grace because, A, you may want to write this down, it's an opportunity for you to follow the example of Jesus. Look there, beginning in 22. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges, judges justly. This is a grace because this is our opportunity to follow Christ, to do as we just sang moments ago, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Christ. It's to do as Christ, to see what He did, to, to look upon Him who suffered and the way in which He suffered and say, I want to follow Him in this way. When I'm reviled, when I'm mistreated, when I'm hated, when I'm gossiped about, I want to follow Christ in this way. And this is a great opportunity. This is a grace. How do we do that? Well, one thing that Peter alludes to is we do it by focusing on that virtue, specifically not returning evil for evil, responding with kindness and honor and respect. Just last week, God provided me a beautiful opportunity to do this. There was an email that came out to written to a bunch of officers and it basically pointed out something that I'd done wrong. And I looked at my email history and I had done exactly what he wanted me to do and it was exactly what was right. And boy, it took me about seven emails to write out, then trash it, then write out, then trash it, then write out, trash it, to get to the point where I was gracious and kind and did not revile in return. I wanted to show, I mean, I, I eventually did say, hey, you know, sir, here's, you know, here's the email I sent. It was exactly what you asked me. It wasn't what you said earlier. I, I appreciate it. Your instructions are very clear. I appreciate you. But it took me a while to get to that place mentally. My blood was boiling. I think someone, some, maybe you could tell me who it was. Someone was in my office around that time. They came out, talked to me, and I was like, oh, I'm kind of, my blood's boiling right now. I've got this email. It doesn't bother me. But we're supposed to do this. Take time, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Christ. Don't revile in return. Don't respond with a nasty email. Don't try to embarrass someone, even if they try to embarrass you. Don't gossip about someone just because they gossiped about you. So that's one idea in this following Christ. It's by focusing your heart on the fruit of the Spirit, on virtue expressed as not reviling, returning good for evil, not evil for evil. We also do something that it says at the end of that passage, we entrust ourselves to God. Up in verse 19, Peter says, It's a gracious thing when, mindful of God, 
one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is the same idea as entrusting ourselves to God. When you're mistreated by coworkers, bosses, even people that work for you, speak to God, acknowledge it, say it's a blessing, and say, Lord, I, I trust you with my work, with my labor. I trust you with what's going on. In fact, let me get real practical. Maybe just before you respond, before we write that email or hit send, take a deep breath, take a couple moments, Maybe even repeat the words of Christ, the last words he said on the cross. Remember what it is? Into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you. I am trusting you as Jesus trusted you for all that was wrong that was happening to him. I trust you. I want to do the same thing. So this is the first idea, that this is a grace. It's an opportunity to follow Jesus, and we follow in, in virtue and in trust. The second thing Peter lays out for us to demonstrate that this is a grace is found in the last couple of verses. Look there in 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, you may want to circle and underline that word, that, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were once straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Final idea here, B, it is an opportunity to fulfill God's purpose for you. It's an opportunity. This is a grace because it's an opportunity to fulfill God's purpose for you. Jesus died on the cross that... We would die to sin and live to righteousness. The goal of your life, now that you're a saved person, now that God has changed you, the goal of your life is not success, it's not fame, it's not popularity, it's not having everyone like you. The goal in life is that you would die to sin and live to righteousness. That is why Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. He died to make us righteous. He didn't die to make life on earth easy or wealthy or prosperous. That's the prosperity gospel. It takes a substitutionary atonement and turns it upside down and makes it focus all on you. Jesus died to make you rich. Jesus died to make life easy. That is not what is preached in the Bible. Jesus died to make you stand righteous forensically, right? You think of a court of law, you stand before God covered in the righteousness of Christ. He died to provide His righteousness to cover you before God so that you would be righteous in that way. But He also died, what this verse is talking about, He also died so that the Spirit would come in you and make you transform it to righteousness. That you would go from grace to grace, from faith to faith, you would mature and grow and become more and more like Jesus. He didn't die simply to get you a ticket to heaven. He died so that you would grow and mature and become Christ in this earth, the, the body of Christ. You would live like him, reflect uh, his personality, his demeanor. You would reflect his attitude. You would reflect who he is to this world. That's why he died. I loved hearing the testimonies last week before the baptisms and Jacoby's testimony said, he said at the end, his favorite verse is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Remember that last verse. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. This brings up another idea. Jesus was wounded for our spiritual and moral hearing, healing. Do you see the end of 24? By His wounds we were healed. Yes, in the most basic of sense, it's reduced down to that forensic idea, that idea that we're Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. We didn't stand before God without His punishment pouring on us. But it's broad enough to include that transformative idea. He's, it's broad enough to include this idea, we're healed from sin. We're able now to do what's right. God enables us and He saves us to do what is right. This reminded me of what Augustine said about the four states of man. Some of you might have come across this in philosophy class at some point. I think it was in Letters to Pelagius. I think that's where it was, um, but I'm not 100% sure on that. He said in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, he's talking about the four states of man. Where is man in, ter- in relative to sin and righteousness? There's four states, he says. In Eden, before the fall... Man was, he says, passe pecare, passe non pecare, able to sin and able not to sin. So they had genuine free will. They could not sin and live perfectly, or they could choose to sin. Of course, very quickly they chose to sin. But they had that free will, they had that ability to choose to sin or to choose not to sin and be righteous. After the fall, exactly what God said came true. They died spiritually. And so instantaneously, they were non passe, non pecari, not able not to sin. In other words, everything was stained and tainted with sin. This is the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean they're doing everything they can possibly do wrong, but what it does mean is that everything is stained with sin, and they are unable then to ultimately do what's right. Why? Because it's not motivated by the Spirit of God. They may do some surface moral deeds, but the Holy Spirit is not behind them. So they're not really ultimately able to not sin. They're not able not to sin. Then the Holy Spirit comes to a person, regenerates their heart, a miracle happens, and instantaneously man is, what he says, passe non pecare, able not to sin. Because the Spirit now motivates them, a person, person can finally be motivated by God to do what is right. And what's the first thing they do with this right? They have faith in Christ. And they repent of their sin following after him. They're compelled to turn to Christ. And then in the end, when we're glorified with new bodies, we will become, Augustine says, non passe pecari, unable to sin. And we look forward to that day that we're rid of these old bodies and we are given these resurrected, reconstituted bodies and there's no sin in us. Well, where are we as Christians now? We're at, we're at that third point. A magnificent miracle has taken place. We're healed Because of what Christ did on the cross, morally, thanks to the wounds of Christ, we are now able to do what is right. What a joy and what a freedom and what an amazing privilege it is. And what Peter is saying is, I want you to exercise that right. We talk about this in a society, right? We have certain rights, and there are certain rights, and we have to encourage people, exercise that right. We need to exercise this right. We have this ability to finally do the right thing. And what a joy and what a freedom and what an amazing privilege it is 
to finally do what is right, motivated by the Holy Spirit to follow Christ. Isn't that good? So we fulfill God's purpose for us by living for righteousness, by relishing this fact that we're morally healed because of Christ's sacrifice, and we live out this purpose for us being led by our shepherd, Jesus. That's that last phrase, Jesus rescued us as a lost sheep, He now leads us. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Jesus is our good shepherd. He led us from death to life, and He should continue to lead us as we live our lives in the secular workplaces, among lost people. We ought to live in a certain way, constantly led by the Spirit of Jesus, our shepherd. Again, I want to be very practical here. When you encounter punishment, ill treatment, shame, simply for doing the right thing, when you're mistreated in the workplace, you should meditate on what you're called to do. Follow Jesus purpose of His calling you to be led by Him as your shepherd. Can't forget that old hymn, Savior like a shepherd, lead us much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us for our use thy folds prepare. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast bought us. Thine we are. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for all that you've given us. Teach us your truth. We pray, Lord, as we go into this world. I have no doubt that many of us will go into the world this very week and be mistreated, be gossiped about, be lied about, slandered about. Someone is going to say something to invigorate in our hearts a negative response. We're going to want to respond poorly. Help us follow Jesus, our shepherd. Help us live righteously like him. And Lord, as always, we close by praying for those who don't know you. We pray that you will work a miracle right now in their hearts. Call them to repent of their sin, follow after Christ, trusting in him. Give them life even today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give a benediction. I think a fitting benediction, not only for the sermon, but even uh, Steve's announcement. May he who, who builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, grant you an awareness of his love, that you may be always joyful, praying continually, and giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you.